please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4 and find verses 2 through 6 where we'll focus our attention this morning. And then if you don't mind, please stand with me as we read our text, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray together. Father, what a a wonderful salvation you have given us that's described in the beautiful letter that Paul sent these brothers and sisters in Colossae. I pray as we find ourselves here in this passage that you would help us to see how the truths of the gospel are to impact our life with those who don't have the gospel. I pray that you'll help us as we consider what we pray for and how it should be matched by what we live for. Father, help us to understand how our lives are not only to be lived by us before you, but how they're to be received and perceived by the world. Help us to take these things so seriously that they do dominate our life because our passion is for Christ to be pleased, you to be glorified, and the Spirit to work in our speech for the gospel to go out with power and for dead souls to be made alive, for outsiders to become insiders. Father, give us grace and humility with ourselves to understand ourselves in light of this passage and help us to see what you deserve of us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. How do we as Christians thrive in a world that is not ours. Well, last week we started this passage. We saw that the first thing we do is pray. We pray and we live committed lives of prayer to receive uh, what we need for our pursuit in this life and in this world that is not ours. There are many elements to our prayer that we looked at last week. You can Remember those hopefully, but possibly we could summarize this with just one stanza from a 1779 hymn by William Cowper. He says, And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. I wonder often, do you pray like your life depends on it? Do you pray like the lives of the souls around you depend on it? I understand Sovereignty, but I think we cannot neglect our responsibility in prayer. Paul tells us as we live in this world that is not ours, we find what we need through prayer. We live 
by prayer. But he doesn't stop there. He moves on to what we'll see today. We live by God's wisdom to witness and see God bring fruit. So in essence, what we pray for also determines how we live and what we live for. And Paul's command at the beginning of Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, is a hook that everything else in verses 5 and 6 kind of hangs on. Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Perhaps your Bible translators chose to interpret Paul's metaphor and you read something like conduct yourselves with wisdom. That's a great interpretation, but the truth is Paul says walk in wisdom. This is his key command in verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom. Let your entire life be characterized by your walk in wisdom. Again, don't forget the context. Paul models a prayer for opportunity, models a prayer for the glory of God, models a prayer to make the mystery of Christ known to the world that needs it. And then he gives us what we can't separate from that prayer, which is a life that lives as if that prayer is going to come true. We pray for an open door and we live as though the door is open. We expect great things from God and we attempt great things for God. That was William Carey's battle cry. We pray for God to work and then we live as though God is working. Walk in Wisdom. Wisdom provides a proper environment for the Christian to walk. The theme of wisdom occurs all throughout this little epistle to the Colossians. It probably reflects a major concern that Epaphras had for his people that he was pastoring. He likely showed up to Paul where he was in jail and said, Paul, there's all kinds of these uh, Sophias floating around, the, these wisdom, these philosophies, these people who have ideas, and they're promoting them, and I don't really understand how to get around them. And Paul says, look, here's what you need. It's Jesus. Above all things, understand Jesus as supreme. And so here Paul says, uh, in wisdom, be walking. The wisdom is obviously, as we take a peek at the letter to the Colossians, is the wisdom of Christ. And in that wisdom, we walk, we move, we have our life. Paul's command is for godly wisdom to encompass the totality of the believer's life, as well as what the world sees in a believer's life. We often stop short of that second part of even worrying about how outsiders perceive us, but Paul will help us. At the beginning of the epistle, Paul prayed for the Colossians to have the wisdom that they desperately needed. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says it's the answer to our prayer. Paul was praying that the Colossians may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Obviously, God's will there in view. Colossians 1.28, he says, Wisdom is the substance of our ministry to each other that produces maturity in Christ. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with our opinions. No, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 3 tells us where wisdom is found. It's found in Christ. And the wisdom we find in Christ is not stingy. It's like a treasure. It's full and abundant. Colossians 3 16. What do we do with this wisdom? We teach each other. We admonish one another. We we take the word of Christ and let it dwell in us richly. So what comes out is the wisdom of Christ. But what is wisdom, you ask? Well, Proverbs chapter 2 
first six verses gives us an idea of what wisdom is. Solomon, in his wisdom, says to his son, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands, commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs chapter 2, the first six verses. Wisdom is God's truth applied to our life while fearing the Lord. Wisdom is God's truth applied to our life while fearing the Lord. Wisdom in our Google age is often confused with knowledge. Just because you know something, you are not automatically wise. Wisdom is not equal to knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge applied in the fear of the Lord. I remember Kent Farney providing the difference between wisdom and knowledge so helpfully in the Grace Life lesson several years ago. He said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. You can Google it. Check me. It is. Tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting that fruit in the fruit salad. Knowledge is not wisdom. Godly wisdom is something we must pursue always and always understand we are never going to master it. Consider Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable are his ways. You, you don't lock down wisdom. You haven't attained the fullness of of wisdom. You've never achieved the Mount Everest of wisdom. We're always growing. Wisdom is not a skill you will ever master in this life. It's a pursuit of worship as you take the truth of God and you fear God and you worship him and you submit to his truth in every area of your life. That knowledge of what God requires becomes wisdom as you live it out for him, the application of his truth. Wisdom is so many things that we have to see. Wisdom is the foundation of our life and salvation. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't fear the Lord, you won't be wise. You could be smart, but you won't be wise. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, The Bible makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ, there's a supernatural reality to wisdom that is not attainable by everyone. Wisdom isn't a boring intellectual exercise. Wisdom brings joy and fulfillment and excitement in the reality of this life, even in difficulty. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 13 and 14. Listen to the metaphor here. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. We don't need convinced of that. But what does he say next? Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Wisdom is sweet to the soul. Wisdom is too valuable to just hope for or stumble upon or kind of hope it happens to you. Instead, we're to seek for it, long after it, beg God for it. 
James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Beg God for wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5. If you're not wise and you're not begging God for wisdom, you're happy to be a fool. Because God says, ask me and I will offer it to you. I will give you wisdom. Wisdom is a humility of the soul's direction that comes from the truth of God and fearing him and not being proud of ourselves. When that's how we gain wisdom, we're happy with wisdom. Wisdom says you can't, but God does. Wisdom says you don't know, but God does. Wisdom says I'm the problem. God's the solution. It takes humility to find ourselves in that situation. Wisdom is, is often gained from others who are wise. You're not on your own in your pursuit of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Praise the Lord. But don't forget the rest of the verse. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. This is not a neutral pursuit. Either we're growing in wisdom or we're growing in foolishness. And wisdom is an urgent need with a timetable. You need wisdom now. You can't wait forever to get wisdom. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may get a heart of wisdom. The reality that your life is expiring all the time is the reality that you need more wisdom all the time. Young, old, doesn't matter. Whoever wants wisdom needs to remember that our days are numbered. Psalm 90, verse 12. The humble find wisdom. The proud find pride. The proud can't find wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul says, walk in wisdom. Walk in what? Humility, saying that I don't know, but God does know. And God's truth says all I need to do is fear him and trust what he says. That's wisdom. Is it more complicated than that? At times, but that's wisdom. Fear the Lord. Trust his truth over the world's truth. Trust his truth over your personal truth. And fill your soul with Christ and find that as you fear God, you become wise because you're not trying to steer your own boat. You're just letting the word of God do it for you, which is where we find the wisdom that we so desperately need. It's in Christ. Christ is where wisdom is. Christ is all the wisdom that you could possibly need. You can flip back Colossians chapter 2, find verse 2 to 3. Paul is praying for the Colossians that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm afraid people view biblical wisdom as some sort of like divine treasure hunt. Like you have to go here and maybe get a clue and then go there like a scavenger hunt and get another clue and go there and get a no just just find all that you need in the person and the word of Christ so second how do we apply this wisdom and paul says 
that once we understand wisdom, the wisdom of Christ, especially the beauty of the book of Colossians, the reality of all these true things, what do we do with them? We walk in them. Walk. It's an imperative. It's a command. The conduct of your life is to be walking in Christ. The characterization of your life is to be walking in wisdom. Wisdom with effect. You're not just a hermit sage holed up in a cave. Wisdom has an effect. You don't find true biblical wisdom that doesn't produce from you something for God. Walk in wisdom. There's an identifiable effect in your life of wisdom. Have you ever noticed how children walk like their parents, have mannerisms like their parents? Every once in a while, I see my girls doing something. I'm like, wow, that is just like their mom. You know, they stand the same way. They walk the same way. Or I'll see my sons being naughty, and I'll say, wow, that is just like their mom. I mean, their dad, you know, like, <laughs> see, you see yourself come out in your kiddos and it's terrifying at times, but Paul is reminding us that because we know the wisdom of God, because we seek the person of God and the beauty of Christ, and we fill our minds and souls with the wonder of God, what starts to happen? We start to walk like the wisdom of God is animating us and moving us, and that's the pattern that our mind wants to follow. Does it take time? Yeah. It takes a lot of time. But we learn to chase and pursue wisdom. We learn to fill our hearts with the beauty of wisdom. We fear the Lord. We don't want anything but him as we worship him. And all of a sudden we start to walk like him. It takes time. That's why young people are rarely wise. Because wisdom is knowledge tested, applied, experienced, proven. All with the humility that says, this, this is not me. This is the Lord. All with the humility that says, all my life is about fearing him. This is, this is not about what I've accomplished and what I've gathered. This is about what God has taught me. You cannot be proud and wise. You just can't be. You can be proud and smart, and none of the rest of us will like you. But you cannot be proud and wise. God often makes us work for wisdom. He gives us experiences that we don't want, or he takes from us things that we do want. He teaches us that we can test these truths he's given us, and they're found accurate as we fear him and humble ourselves before him. The wisdom that God gives us is the only way that we can practically live this life. Wisdom is to be everywhere in the Christian life. Life. That's what the idea of walking in wisdom is describing, that it's everywhere. Wisdom to the Christian life in our souls, in our lives, is like bacon. There can never be too much of it. You can never have too much wisdom. And in the context, what is wisdom for? Colossians chapter 4, verse 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Wisdom is for relating to outsiders. Paul is very content with a very clear line between those in Christ and those not in Christ. But too often, Christians employ wisdom as an insulating factor. They think that wisdom keeps them separate from those outside. It keeps them from contacting anything that isn't, by their standards, beneficial or, or righteous. 
But don't think of wisdom as an insulating force in your life. Instead, it's the program that helps you engage outsiders in the right way. Wisdom doesn't close us off from the world. Instead, it opens us to the world in the proper fashion. The whole point of Paul's argument is how we use wisdom with who? The church family. Well, of course we do that. Read the rest of the book of Colossians. We'll find that in a moment. But who is this directed at? Outsiders, unbelievers. So we have to understand we use wisdom with unbelievers. Paul is giving us a specific application here for our wisdom. It's not only the benefit of our spiritual life. It's not only to help us disciple well. It's not only to help us lead each other properly. It's to be used in our efforts to reach those outside of the faith and bring them into the faith. That's why Paul's wanting us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. It's not so that we can get a promotion. It's not so that we can have a, a better life. It's so that they can have life. We leverage our relationship with outsiders to present them to, to present to them godly wisdom, truth that they can never find on their own. We have oozing out of our life everywhere if we're walking in wisdom. Notice though these unbelievers, they are not, though they're outsiders, they are not enemies. We need to be careful in our world today to not make enemies out of the mission field. If they are a he that goes by a she that doesn't need to be the sticking point of our every conversation. If they side with a political agenda that seems to promote murder and hate, that doesn't mean, mean to need to be the only thing that we talk about with outsiders. So we have to foster compassion for outsiders, not merely draw the line between us and them. Should there be a line? Well, absolutely, there should be a very clear line, but the very clear line should be how you live in a godly way. That's the mark. The mark is more like a line in, or a crack in the sidewalk and not a Grand Canyon. The moment God works in their soul to bring them from outside to inside, there's nothing else that needs to happen. It's not an inseparable distance between us and them unless it's us trying to bring them in or them trying to get in. When God says, God will do what God does. So we don't want to dig a ditch between us and outsiders. We don't want to build a wall between us and outsiders. Not a political statement. Instead, be with them, just be wise toward them. Be careful to be less concerned about their opinions and more concerned with their salvation. After all, your wisdom is informed by what? Fearing the Lord. You have wisdom that they can never have. You have opinions derived from the beauty of God's word and truth and the work of him on your soul that they will never be able to come up with on their own. Convincing outsiders of an appropriate geopolitical stance won't give them life. Proving to your biology class that God created the world in six literal days will get none of them into heaven. Are there times when we speak those truths? Absolutely. Wisdom says speak truth. Wisdom says give truth, but doesn't say what the setting is. Wisdom has to determine what the setting is. Wisdom says make sure people are listening. Our calling is not to be judging outsiders, but evangelizing them. 
So be careful not to read into Paul's term that these are outsiders as something to be protected from. They're not to be protected from. They're to be engaged in appropriately. So how do we do that? Well, we have to make sure that we, as far as we go, as far as our responsibility is, that we maintain peace with all people. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. As far as it's your responsibility, be at peace with everyone. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 tells church leaders to be careful how outsiders view them. 1 Timothy 3, 7, speaking of an elder's qualifications, Paul says this, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So obviously this doesn't mean a capitulation to falsehood or a promotion of error or cowering behind passivity and being afraid of speaking the truth, but it does mean that it's done in the right way at the right time for the right reasons with the right people. We make what matters matter. We don't worry about everything else because the wisdom of God says these are the things that matter the most. These are the things that are eternal. Those are just things. And outsiders are watching all of us, and part of our every responsibility as believers is to represent the Savior and his message well. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter tells these oppressed and struggling people, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's not oblivious to what's happening. These people are doing the right thing. And he says, hey, make sure that you're doing the right thing because someday they're going to answer for it. So church family, outsiders are watching. What are they seeing? Do they see hate, anger, and opinions? Or do they see grace? Do they see truth? Do they see wisdom? Do they see an otherworldly wisdom that's rooted in security and joy and confidence in our God and faithfulness being satisfying to us and, and a burning hot hope and passion for what's coming? Because uh, we don't need it in this world. We're not connected to this world. Our hope is for the next. Our longing is for heaven. Our passion is for this nation that we're from as we're citizens of heaven. Is that what they see? Or do they see we know what is right right now and this is how you shall live and this is what you shall do? Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. The best use of the time. Paul reminds us we only have so much time. What do you fill it with? Is it filled with walking and wisdom toward outsiders or something else? Paul uses a unique idea to uh, convey the interaction between ourselves and the outsiders with time. We walk in wisdom, making the best use of our time. And this making the best use of our time is to redeem the time. It's translated like that in other places. Paul uses redemption language. I believe it's on purpose to flavor the reality uh, uh, that these commands have salvific implications. We have to be living like this because people's souls are at stake. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, ordinarily, this is how the word of redemption is used. Galatians 4, 5, at the right time, Jesus came to do what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's redemption. Paul says, redeem the time. Make the best use of the time. What is redemption? To buy something from somewhere, someone else, that it 
can't get out of and to make it your own. Paul takes that idea and says, look, leverage your walk in wisdom to redeem or buy back time with these outsiders. Make the most of your life, this normal reality we call life, walking in wisdom, make the most of it for the benefit of outsiders. The idea is to buy up intensively, to snap at the opportunity, to leverage the resources of our life, to buy time with outsiders. So on the one hand, we pray that God would open doors that we can't. And then on the other hand, we leverage our life to get time with outsiders so that we can give them the hope of the beauty of the mystery of Christ. See, these are not two disconnected things. We're praying that God would do this and we're living as God is doing this. We walk in wisdom and strategy, redeeming the time from mediocrity and pleasure and fun and mundane hobbies and wasteful activities and things like video games so that you can do something with outsiders. Where do you spend your time? Do you redeem your time for the benefit, the salvific benefit of outsiders? And I'm going to pick on fourth graders for a moment. Actually, it's their parents. But I heard of a fourth grade flag football team who practices four nights a week for an hour and a half. I have a theological word for that. That's stupid. They stop paying attention after 20 minutes when they start getting hungry. You know, they're not listening to you. Nobody in here, but others that do these kinds of things. Is that redeeming the time with outsiders? Man, it sure could be. I don't know about an hour and a half, but it sure could be. It depends on what you're doing there, why you're there, and if you're actually moving these conversations into the gospel, if you're just talking about how to pull a flag with kids that aren't paying attention. There's an urgency to Paul's thing here. Paul is saying that this time must be redeemed. It's being held captive so you redeem that time. You say, well, what's, what's holding my time captive? Well, you know, there's things that hold your time captive. Have you ever seen a worldly institution that just kind of asks for a willy-nilly commitment? You know, whether it's the Lions Club or the Young Professionals or Chamber of Commerce or Genesis Health Club, when, man, they want you there all the time to do what they got to do to help them with their mission and advance their agenda and push what they've got going on. They, they want you there. Paul says, redeem the time. Redeem it from things that aren't eternal and make it eternal. Consider Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul uses the same redemption language uh, but reminds us that in this church, as we see the end drawing near every day, Ephesians 5, 16, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. We're not on a neutral playing ground. The days are evil. Are you redeeming the time from mundane, temporal, evil pursuits to eternal pursuits? Paul says we must. You don't need to worry about tomorrow. You're sealed. You're secured. You're safe in Christ. And so we get flippant with time, lackadaisical with our lives. But let me ask you, are your neighbors secure in Christ? The only breath your neighbors are promised are the last one they took if they don't know Christ. What are you doing to advance the mission, the beautiful wonder of God's mystery, which is Christ to the people who need it? Paul says, redeem the time. Use these times that we have as relationship opportunities for people that need to know Christ. Walk in wisdom. And second, 
speak with grace. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Let your speech be always gracious. So first understand, this is your responsibility. This is your responsibility. Speak with grace. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. The responsibility is on you. It's not on outsiders to produce from you gracious speech. We think about it like that, but that's not at all what Paul says. It's your responsibility. Maybe you have a lot of the Bible's knowledge in your head and you can kind of lob these truth bombs over the fence, as it were, and you know, you're in your safe little foxhole of salvific security, so you just throw out truth to these people that don't understand it. You're just lobbing truth bombs. Now they've got it. They need to figure it out. Isn't fake book a wonderful place to see a ridiculous amount of Christians throwing knowledge at other people, occasionally even wisdom, but almost, almost, almost always and almost universally without grace? I think if you're spending too much time on Facebook, you're not making the best use of your time. But the time you do spend on Facebook, is it, is it an opportunity for you to speak graciously? I had a friend who I'm convinced we'll see in heaven, and he's a great guy. I love him. And June, he writes on his Facebook, God created Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. True? Helpful? Not really. Profitable? The comment section didn't appear so. What are we doing? Do you know, like, not only are the rest of us seeing these things, but Jesus is? Are we making sure that as far as we can, we're at peace with all people? Do we let our speech always be gracious? It's our all-the-time occupation. This is our responsibility to speak with grace. From the gospel conversations that we have to stock market evaluations, we have to speak with grace. There's never an off-the-clock time where you don't have to speak with grace. Imagine how you're perceived by outsiders when you say things that they don't understand and all they recognize is the harm that you're trying to cause them. Probably not what Jesus wants to come from you. Jesus, after all, says, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and you'll find rest. But we kind of live like, well, if you don't do what Jesus says you have to do, which we also say you have to do all these things, then you won't really ever get to Jesus. That's an anti-gospel. That's a works-based gospel. We're to be gracious all the time in our speech, especially toward outsiders. Your responsibility, Christian, is to guard your speech from being anything but gracious. You say, well, what about sin? Okay, well, what about it? What about your sin? You should be as gracious with outsiders as God is as gracious with you. Your responsibility is to make your speech Gracious. Does that mean there's never truth? Absolutely not. There's truth that we'll get to. But don't think it'll be easy because you're battling your flesh. You're battling your pride. You're battling temptation to flattery. You're battling temptation to be judgmental. You're battling legalism to all of these things are mixed in the same pot. And you have to employ your little red rebel, the tongue. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. What's the point? It's hard to speak always graciously. 
but our responsibility is to speak with grace. And we can't blame others and outsiders for our sin. How many times have you said something like, oh, they just, I just, they just make me so mad? No, they don't. You're mad, and they squeeze you a touch, and then it comes out. So we have to be careful to speak with graciousness and not pride. Imagine, you know, we, unbelievers have, have given their lives to a certain endeavor, and they've found failure, and then we walk in, and we Google it, and all of a sudden, in three minutes, we come up with, uh, man, I know everything about your problem. Hear ye, hear ye. Everybody listen to me, and I'm going to help you. Gracious, always. Our responsibility is us. Speak graciously. Second, notice this is a perpetual habit. Always. You know what always means? It means on Sundays when you're with your Christian friends. No. It means always, every day, all the time, we speak graciously. You walk and talk with grace. God's grace should overwhelm us and produce from us enough grace within us to come out of us in the lives of other people. Do you know the song Amazing Grace? It's one of our house favorites. Our toddler loves to sing Amazing Grace. has a few verses. I don't know where they came from, but they're extra. I'm guessing you could recite those verses. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Your speech should teach the truth of that song to all those around you. Ask yourself, how would your coworkers describe grace if all they knew about grace was how you spoke to them? Husbands, when your wife makes a mistake, what does she hear from your speech? Is it exacting? Is it angry? Is it apathy? Wives, your husband drops the ball on a project and instead of doing the honey-do list, decides to watch the game. What does he hear from you? Anger? Pouting? Maybe silence? When your coworker botches something on a Friday afternoon and they leave early and you're stuck there late cleaning up their mess and you meet back up on Monday, what do they hear from you? Grace or threats? When your neighbor sprays Roundup on their crabgrass on a characteristically windy Kansas day and they kill some of your beautiful fescue and in a few days there's brown spots in your yard. What would the lyrics to their song of Amazing Grace be? Mediocre grace. How boring and ineffective it sounds that was offered to a scum like me. Every word matters. Every conversation may be the conversation where the grace you display in speech is the push God uses to plant the seed of the gospel that he's going to grow into the beauty of salvation. How often is God gracious to us? Always. God's grace is described as rich and treasure-like. It's inexhaustible. What about yours? What better describes your grace? A communion cup or a five-gallon bucket? How much grace do you have for people? Paul says, always be gracious. Our testimonies before a watching world are to be gracious. The effects of Christ's work on our life that we claim to have been transformed by should be pictures that allow others to see the beauty of what God's grace is and provides. 
We walk and talk with grace always. So what exactly is gracious speech? Just, it's just affirming anything that anybody else wants. That's what it is. Of course not. That's not gracious speech. Like many things, graciousness is helpful to understand when we look at its opposite. That's what Paul was doing in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You see there, but now you must put them all away, since these are the old things. We put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. Those are things that are the opposite of the gracious self. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32 is kind of the bridge between ungracious and gracious speech. You can read it. You can meditate on it. You can live it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up, and as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We're to be kind, generous, gentle, joy-filled, gracious. Paul is using a familiar term to us, grace. He's often applying it to God or the works of God or the benefit God gives us. Grace, it's charis. It's often God's attribute, but Paul says it's to be our attribute in our speech. The hardest thing to control, the little red rebels, what's supposed to be most often speaking for God. Grace. Gracious speech nourishes. It brings health. Colossians 3.12 should characterize our speech. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. That's, that's the foundation of gracious speech, that heart. Will it be different with unbelievers? Of course. But similar? Absolutely, it must be. Colossians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember, Paul is, is, is telling these uh, Paul is telling these men the examples of the church leaders should look like this and should be the pursuit of all. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and will escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Gracious speech is kind to everyone. It's not quarrelsome. It's not trying to pick a fight. It's kind. It's not afraid of correction. That's not at all what it is, but it's gentle in correction. Graciousness doesn't mean we don't speak truth. Don't misunderstand Paul. He's the one that said there are outsiders and the rest of us. He's not afraid to draw the line. It's how he crosses the line that's to be reasonable, as he tells the Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Gracious anchor, graciousness anchors us to doing what Christ desires and not what we want with our words. And as you see next, graciousness doesn't keep us from correcting others or speaking truth into the lives of others. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What is this seasoning? What is this salt? It's almost always uh, in the context of witnessing. It's uh, preservation. It's purification. Matthew chapter 5, verse 
13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. He follows the salt metaphor with the light metaphor. You're the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill. Salty and well-lit Christians have a witness that is noticeable and discernible. Salt that has no flavor, Luke chapter 14, verse 34, is worthless to the Lord. If you have no salt in your speech, you're not helping people. But if all you have is salt and you've left off the graciousness, you're, again, not helping people. Salt brings truth to bear through wise and careful living and prayer. Notice Paul says, season with salt. Season with salt. Season. Don't saturate but season. Some of you walk through life with like the little Chick-fil-A salt packet. You can only get it six days a week. And it's just a little thing. Crack it open, barely even notice it. Just a tiny little. Some of you, you go straight to Cargill. You're like, give me that 50-pound bag pallet. I want me some salt. And you just, you know, you're walking around with a bag just dumping it all over the place all, all the time. You're both wrong, according to Paul. There has to be an effect there has to be enough salt to, to provide an effect, and, and it has to be a seasoning of salt, not a saturation of salt. You don't need the dump truck of salt, and you need more than the little salt shaker. You've got to season with salt. Paul says we must season, prepare, or make ready our speech. It's gracious, and it's strategically given, seasoned with salt. Again, this is, it's calculated. It's not willy-nilly. It's thinking through what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, who we're going to do it to. So part of your seasoning is to make your wisdom and your gracious speech allow for a palatable, beneficial, and decisive consumption. That's partly your job. It's not merely other people's job to receive what you, true, what you say. How, well, well, I said the truth. Good. You just whacked them with a 50-pound bag of salt. Help them. Season your truth. Don't just throw it at them. Have you seen those little salt guns that kill bugs? That's not that helpful if you're trying to season your steak. Like, be gentle, be gracious, seasoned with salt. Imagine Paul's metaphor. What does a little salt do to an amazing dish? It makes it even better. Don't let the doctors tell you otherwise. So good. But if you've got that amazing dish and you just dump salt on it, what's it make it? Makes it trash. You throw it away, you can't eat it. Too much salt ruins things. The right amount of salt makes it amazing. So what's Paul saying? He says you have a responsibility in your speech. That you have to take this beautiful wisdom that God has given you and live it out. All the time, everywhere, everything you do, before us, absolutely, before them. Whoever them is, you betcha. And you've got to season that wisdom with salt. Truth that has an effect. Truth that's discernible. Truth that they understand, but truth that eventually gets to the point. If all you're doing is living a life of graciousness, people aren't going to hear the gospel. They're not going to listen to you. But if all you're doing is dropping salt bombs on people, they're not going to hear the gospel either. You have to take these things and put them together. Grace and truth are not enemies. They're friends. Grace and truth are how you got saved. Grace and truth, guess what? It's how other people get saved. So live your lives with grace and truth. When I try to think about grace and truth and how it speaks and how we use it in the life of other people, my mind goes to a man named Polycarp. 
I don't know if you remember him. He was a leader in the church of Smyrna around 160 AD. And his life was a life of physical toil, struggle, spiritual growth, but hardship. His fascinating life echoes throughout the halls of church history as a man who lived in constant prayer, full of thanks and acquainted with suffering. A man who walked wisely toward outsiders, especially the Roman Empire that hated him and was constantly waiting on an opportunity to kill him. He's a man who constantly was busy with the things of God and yet gracious in his speech that was seasoned with salt and he was always around unbelievers. He was ready with answers that brought the gospel to bear on the lives of people around him. Polycarp was a, a man most remembered, not just for his life, but for his death. He was loved by Christians. He was hated by rulers. He was arrested when he was older for his allegiance to Christ. And he was brought to the arena for his trial. He was actually betrayed by people close to him, but that's another story. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. He was known. And on hearing that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to apostatize. He says, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists, which they called Christians atheists because they didn't worship Caesar as God. Swear, urged the proconsul. Reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp answered, 86 years I've served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul replied, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. Proconsul says, if you despise the animals or if you reject the animals, I will have you burned. Polycarp replies, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Salty, wise, committed, true. People understood and they killed him for it. Polycarp loved Christ and lived for Christ, and even to his end in this life, he spoke graciously, seasoned with salt for Christ. Will you? If you will, then continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, praying that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, praying that we may make it clear, which is how we ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, letting your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the beauty of your work in us, the way you are always gracious with us, even in our correction, you're gracious to us. Father, help us to learn from your example and to live with your wisdom in this world that so desperately needs what you've given us. Help us to long for you to make a way and open a door for the gospel, the mystery of Christ, and help us to be ready always ready to redeem that time to make much of you. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.